0: Go to Bluehost.com slash wondersweet.
1: You done with your Oreo? <laughs> yeah, I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um <laughs> Do you really know what happened? <laughs> the brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. <laughs> I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you to talk true. about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... Murdery thingy 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 <laughs> thingy. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> were we supposed to do it at the same time i don't know i don't know we we kind of looked at each other and then
2: okay right, try again.
1: Okay. welcome Hello. to oh shit okay <laughs> welcome to mystery murdery thingy.
2: welcome to mystery murdery thingy. <laughs> i don't know what you're trying to do i'm sorry my saying. name is
1: chloe <laughs> uh, my name is mario
2: um welcome
1: yeah what's up hey how's it going it's a
2: late wednesday night
1: <laughs> it's a typical second wednesday night
2: we're very relaxed yes had a good time
1: yes talking um, about some mysteries and murderies. and thingies. Let's get started. Let's just yeah. do
2: it. Let's go. go.
1: Am I going first? No, I want to go first. Okay, you go first.
2: <laughs> I would like to go first. So I am going to talk about, I'm going to talk about like, okay, so I usually don't like to get into the types of disappearances where people just straight up vanish. Right. Because usually, usually it's like Here's the victim, this is what they were like when they were alive, we loved them, and then they vanished one day and that's it, no one knows anything, cold case,
1: period. Mm -hmm. The coldest of cold cases, in some instances.
2: There's nothing to go, there's nothing left to say. Right. And that's, those are so sad.
1: You don't Uh, know if they died, you don't know if they're still alive, you don't know where they are. Right, right. So much mystery.
2: But this one is is a disappearance. Um I'm going to talk about the Death Valley Germans. So this is a pretty popular case, I'd say. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. So uh Death Valley, California, actually um this particular area we're talking about is on the California Nevada border. And so my main source was a long-form article written by Tom Mahood who um he was actually one of two people that discovered the remains.
1: Oh. And who uh, was he writing for?
2: His own website. Oh, his own okay. personal website. Um, outofhand.org. And Wikipedia, of course, and an article um from NBC News, but it had an associated press label on it.
1: Oh, that happens, yeah.
2: I don't know what that means.
1: It's because like the Associated Press, it's like a wire service. So they, they like run their own news, but they also provide news stories for like a lot of other people oh. like Reuters or AFP. There's, there's like a bunch of different ones. I
2: did not click any farther.
1: I so see. So I don't know who wrote it.
2: Um, Sometimes and they're unsigned. the Pahrump Valley
1: Times. <laughs> Pahrump, Pahrump. Hey, that guy didn't give the governor a Pahrump. <laughs> uh-uh. Gave the governor a Pahrump. <laughs>
2: um, how would you say this? P-A-H-R-U-M-P i uh,
1: Yeah, Pahrump? that sounds right.
2: Valley Times, two-part article by Robin Flincham. So. The Discovery. I like to title my
1: cool each one. The Chapter Discovery. one, The Discovery.
2: So. The Death Valley Germans were a German tourist family of four. Uh, the last trace of them was July 23rd of 1996. 3 months later, on October 21st, Death Valley National Park Ranger Dave Brunner who was doing a routine drug search like like aerial helicopter like looking mm-hmm. for drugs um of the back country, you know.
1: Sure. People fucking planting weed and Yes. Uh
2: he found a van parked in a wash in Anvil Canyon, which is a remote area of Death Valley. I mean, the whole, I mean, note that this entire area <laughs> is, is remote. It's a desert.
1: Particularly
2: remote. Uh, it actually stretches about 3 million acres. This particular space that we're talking yeah. about, uh, more specifically, the summer of 1996 was one of the hottest on record with temperatures getting as high as thir- 130 degrees. Jesus. Yeah. Fucking scary. So the van was a green 1996 Plymouth Voyager with California plates Um, for those who, I mean, I don't know how car savvy you have to be to, if you like can picture a Plymouth Voyager.
1: I don't know what any cars look like. (laughs) I know what a Dodge Charger looks like and I know what a Mustang looks like.
2: Do you know what a Chevy Cruze looks like?
1: I have one. So yes. I was going to (laughs) say. It looks like every other car. There's (laughs)
2: like three of them in like the vicinity. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Anyway, moving on. So a 96 Plymouth Voyager, it's basically a, it's a basic passenger van, soccer mom.
1: You're basic.
2: You're basic. It was odd, though, that the car was there in the first place because this area of the park doesn't have any legal roads and you can't get through it anyway. Um, the only way you can get through it is with like, um, a four wheeler. Mm hmm. Um, like a desert bike, that but like even if you could get through it, that's illegal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 1994, when the park was designated as an official wilderness area, that was when vehicles uh, were pro- prohibited. So the van was stuck. The axle was stuck, like in in sand, basically. Both rear wheels were flat as well as the left front tire. So three right of the four wheels were flat. The tracks and the dirt suggested they drove about 200 feet with those flat tires before stopping. The doors were locked and there was no sign of the owner. Nobody was there. After running the license plate, they found that the car was reported stolen on September 10th of 1996. So this is October. The vehicle was actually a rental. It was owned by Dollar Rent-A-Car. Uh, July 8th of 1996, the car had been rented to a group of four German tourists in Los Angeles. So the car was due back. It was taken on, on, yes, it was due back July 26th, but was never returned. It was policy for the rental agency to wait 30 days past the due date before reporting it as stolen. Um, and they they ran their names. The German tourists were Egbert Rimkus, 34, his son Georg Weber, 11, Egbert's girlfriend Cornelia Meyer, 28, and her son Max Meyer, 4. When running their names through the database, they, found an inter- they actually found an Interpol alert on them um, that was put in, put in on August 14th. So they were officially missing. The next day, uh, D- DVNP investigator Eric Inman and personnel from the Inyo County Sheriff's Office, uh, they went back down there and they searched the van itself. So I, the items that were found in the van, two unopened bottles of beer, Bud Ice, and one empty bottle. One empty and one three-quarter full bottle of bourbon. Bourbon? Bourbon? Bourbon. How do you say bourbon? bourbon. Is bourbon. Yeah.
1: Unless you're like, you know, in France, you know, boom, boom, uh,
2: several empty, large water and juice containers, luggage and clothing, numerous exposed rolls of 35 millimeter film and a 35 millimeter camera, one new Coleman sleeping bag in its box and one empty Coleman sleeping bag box, a tent, a pipe with tobacco, a leather card carrier containing Swiss bank cards and a Citicorp card for Egbert. Card with the quote Seahorse Resort in San Clemente, numerous toys, and an unused compact spare tire and jack. So here's what they think the rough timeline is the family left Frankfurt, Germany, and arrived in Seattle on July 8th, where they then left for Los Angeles. The van they rented was due back the 26th, I think they got there on the 23rd, and their flight back home left on the 27th, so there was no evidence of of them ever leaving the USA either. On July 12th, Egbert made a call to his bank in Dresden requesting $1,500 to be wired to a Bank of America branch in the Los Angeles area. The family then ended up in Las Vegas at the Treasure Island Hotel. And July 21st, there is record of Egbert. He faxed a request form um, uh, from the hotel to his ex-wife and his son's mother, uh, Heike Weber, requesting additional funds to be sent to him. So Mm. the... um, the hypothesis was that they were low on funds, especially because the money would never sent, And the family checked out of the hotel the next day, and they were headed to Death Valley. Hmm. So, what we know next is based on visitor logs, items found in the car, and photos recovered from the camera. Receipt records at the Furnace Creek Visitor Center show that on July 22nd, two copies of the booklet, quote, Death Valley National Monument Museum text in the German language were sold. The tourists spent a night at Hanuapa Canyon near Telescope Peak before arriving in Warm Springs Canyon, north of where the van was eventually found. So, the the visitors the visitors log um, had a note written in German that translates to quote going through the pass." Cornelia Meyer signed her name as well as the rest of the family's names. Uh, the pass. The pass, quote-unquote, most likely refers to Mengel's Pass. Pass and the only way to cross... And Mengel's Pass is the only way to cross to the Panamint Mountain Range. And they... It was... I'm, I think they were headed to Yosemite. Um, so... And this course was is rugged. It's tough. It's not something a passenger van would be able to get through. Uh, in the van, they found... They also found an American flag labeled Butte Valley Stone Cabin, which is also called Geologist Geologist's Cabin, um, and that indicating that they had been they'd been there at one point. The cabin, so yeah, so the Geologist Cabin, quote unquote. It's a shelter that's maintained by volunteers in the area, and there's food, and there's also a source of fresh water that's nearby. Um, so their whereabouts between being at the visitor center on July 22nd and then signing the logbook at Warm Spring, um, July 23rd were unknown at the time. So there's this huge gap of time. So the first search search teams canvassed the area over a period of four days, uh, the October 23rd to the 26th expand. So each day they went out and expanded the search area. They had eight horses, uh, Kern County Sheriff's Mounted Search and Rescue, two helicopters doing an aerial search, 45 searchers in the field at all times. A reporter estimated that there were about 250 people involved in the search at one time or another. And they were expecting this to be somewhat successful in that this was a hiking trail, um, but it wasn't something you would go through like... On vacation in a van, um, uh, and there were there were rescues that went on. I mean, mm-hmm. not all the time. I don't know how often, but it but you wouldn't think that they
1: would have gone too far. Exactly, right. that's what I was thinking.
2: Exactly. On the first day, uh, searchers found a Bud Ice beer bottle in a bush about 1.7 miles from the van's location, um, and they matched the other ones that were in the van there was a shady area near the bush that had been brushed clear of rocks and dirt suggesting that someone had sat there to escape the afternoon sun and so those were really that was it Hmm. Uh, over the next four days there weren't any other clues that were found so this was the only large large scale official search since then there have been numerous other searches um park rangers looked into the mine shafts as well later on but they didn't find anything hikers and other enthusiasts organized searches private teams went out to search as well but those are we're not there's not much known about those Mm -hmm. um nothing more was found and the trail went cold for about 13 years the meyer family had gone through the legal procedure of declaring their daughter cornelia and their grandson max dead Um, even though there was still uncertainty and no proof, uh, Ursula Rimkus, Egbert's mother and Georg's grandmother, uh, she never gave up hope and just simply went on to wait. Tom Mahood comes into the picture when he hears the story in the summer of 2008. So this was one of two cases that got, got him interested in the search and rescue field in general. So, um, a year, um, not too long later, february of 2009 he joined the riverside mountain rescue unit rmru and trained as much as possible so he basically became a um part of a search party uh, a search and rescue party and, so, and he also talked about in the article how he learned like man tracking which sounds weird but it's basically you learn how to how to track a person instead of like an animal sure say
1: right a human animal
2: yes uh, he did his own research um, with the case. He was super fascinated with it with the help of a woman named Debbie Breitenstein, one of the original searchers, as well as reports from two other private individuals, one being Dick Hasselman, a retired professor from Virginia Tech, and Emmett Harder, who did his own search and report titled, quote, The Cauldron of Fire. Uh, Tom also received a copy of the Death Valley investigators report by Eric Inman and Eric Inman was one of the guys that um, was first on the scene um, and looked at the evidence in the van. Mm -hmm. Um, So he gathers all this research and research and he concocts a theory and it's very well thought out. It's uh, the basis, the basics of it is that the tourists made a ton of honest mistakes that ended up with deadly consequences. So, Tom notes that the family was probably low on funds as they traveled to Yosemite via Death Valley. Uh, Egbert, like I mentioned before, Egbert had tried contacting his ex-wife back home for money, but it was never received. Some of the photos suggest that they had camped on their own in Hanawapa Canyon, um, where there was also water, so... I think when I was reading this, there was a couple different ways they could go, but they went over there because there was water um If they were low on funds, they couldn't have rented a cabin um and they couldn't camp in the main valley because of the heat and this wasn't really this was like not a a conventional camping spot uh overall, their plan made sense, but they didn't prepare for how difficult it. Is to camp and hike through the area without proper expertise and equipment. They had all they had was a map in the pamphlet. Mm. Um, his okay, so yeah, Mahood's theory goes on to explain that the tourists continued south to Warm Spring, hoping to find more people and info there, but it was deserted. And then Warm Spring was where they signed the register, and then they moved on. The road got worse as they headed back towards Butte Valley, and they stopped at the geologist's cabin hoping again to find other tourists and information about the route, but there was no one. So they moved on when approaching Mengel pass. It was getting more difficult to navigate the train and they realized they, they needed to head head back. It was late afternoon. The pamphlet they had suggested an alternate route via Anvil Canyon road, instead of going back through warm spring road where they had just been. Um, This was an error in the pamphlet. Mm. going back through warm spring road would have taken another two hours and as well and they are, had already navigated through those tough conditions so like in that case looking at the pamphlet it made sense to go back through the other road so they headed back to their last checkpoint geologist cabin and turned down anvil canyon road which was a mistake uh because the road soon turned into a wash which i learned i didn't know what a wash was basically a dried up stream at the bottom of a canyon that it's like it's like dried up mud sure and it has the potential to flow rapidly during a flash flood so it's like mm. it's kind of like <sighs> right outside our door oh yeah There's we know exactly what that door. is oh, right yeah, yeah yeah so at this point they are stranded Tom guesses uh, that someone, probably Egbert, traveled 1.7 miles east, sat down at, at a bush, and drank a beer, which, and that was the evidence that was later found in the search, probably to form some type of plan. So here's what Tom thinks happened. Quote, and this is a quote from, um, The article that he wrote, quote, remember that the Germans were new to the desert southwest and unfamiliar with things that to some of us are so obvious we don't even realize we take them for granted. The Germans had likely seen many military installations in Europe and they had certain commonalities. They all had fences which were regularly patrolled by armed personnel. From Egbert's perspective and knowledge pool, the likelihood of patrols or sentries at the edge of a military installation would have seemed quite high, Mm. end quote. So, however, that's not the case with U.S. military bases because there isn't fencing or personnel really. The security—it's it's the vastness of the desert. Like that's pretty much it. Sure. Um, the the area that was nearby, China Lake NWC um, Naval Weapons Center, I believe, was eight to nine miles south of Anvil vanville canyon and when tom went to go eventually search this place he sat where he thinks edbert sat and like looked around that area and he could like see eight to nine miles like ahead Mm. um he could see things in the distance right
1: because the desert the like air it's like whatever it makes it seem like things that are further away are actually closer isn't that that's like a thing right it's like an optical illusion
2: it sounds right to me In a nutshell, Tom did some extrapolating with his knowledge of the area and came to the conclusion that the family most likely headed south, an area that hadn't been searched yet. Um, This was another eight to nine miles south. Mm -hmm. So Tom Mahood acts on his theory he convinces, that, he convinces one of the RMRU teammates, Les Walker, to join him on this search. So they started early in the morning of November 11th, 2009. Their plan is... Okay, so the plan's pretty complicated in that I need a map and, like, knowledge of the area to properly explain it. Right.
1: But That's the, what you were talking yeah. about with me before. Yeah, <laughs> I, was I was like, like how am I going to talk about this? So I'm not sure.
2: <laughs> but I, I narrowed it down to the basics <laughs> okay. Or that they headed south of Anvil Canyon. So... And there's a there's a nice map that I'll post. There are three canyons that ran south from where the va- from where the van was found, and they chose Squaw Spring, which is a canyon on the west because it had a source of water. So they reached Squaw Spring at about two p.m., filled up their water, then traveled to a canyon on the east where they set up camp for the night. And they uh, at least Tom. Uh, stressed how difficult this was Mm -hmm. and um, you know they had all this gear it was heavy it was hot it was rough terrain it's not easy Mm. this was a, a very difficult hike and so they set up camp and then they headed out early the next day to continue south along their planned search route, and then they set up a perimeter. So Les and Tom split up, but they stayed in contact through radio or just, like, yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, like, across the canyon. Hey! Yeah. eight forty
1: three. Have you found them yet?
2: 8.43 a.m., Les finds a wine bottle. Only fragments of a label could be seen. Les... And then a few... Not too long later, Les radios over again, finds what he thinks is toilet paper, but upon further inspection, it was pieces of a daily planner with writing in German. (gasps) Then he radios again a few minutes later, quote, Tom, we have some bones over here, end quote. 9.14 a.m., Tom joins Les, who was about 600 meters northeast of him. Skeletal fragments were spread over a wide area, um... Les had also found a wallet and ID cards with the name Cornelia Meyer, her passport and bank ID with photo business cards from places they had stayed on their trip, uh, found remains of a small shoe, possibly that of a woman or a child. There was a toothbrush and a tube of toothpaste or some sort of salve. Um, they found a clear, another clear glass bottle, which was later matched to the same ice bud bottles that were found in the van. They, Picked up the wallet and ID cards to prove to the DN- DVNP rangers that like this was legit. Mm-hmm. Um, their reasoning, they like knew you know it was evidence, but their reasoning was one, it had been out there for thirteen years. Um, two, the, it was the it was the thing that they could take back, um, where it would it wouldn't be harmed in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, something physical like that. Sure. Besides, like. You know, the bones. Yeah. They made sure not to disturb the skeletal remains, and they headed back north. So this starts at the beginning of a very long process of working with the Inyo Sheriff's Office, the FBI, and the DVNP. Um, if y'all want to read the article, it is by Tom Mahood called The Hunt for the Death Valley Germans. It's a great article, but he goes into more detail of, of what that was like and how they were um, they were just, like, search and rescuers who were off-duty that, like, found this stuff so they're like oh these guys are enthusiasts so mm. they were like kind of skeptical sure. at sometimes um but their knowledge of the area is what really and his really smart reasoning i mean the fact that he headed south based on that maybe they thought there were people somewhere mm-hmm. and there was a military base that has people maybe you know it was a lot of reasoning that i was yeah. like oh like that makes sense um, and then it was actually successful so what happened nothing more was found i mean um including the remains of the children there was no evidence of 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 foul play um they uh, uh eventually the bones were identified as belonging to a male and a female and the only dna that was recovered was from the bones of egbert um those were the ones that they could only like positively identify that it was him um but we don't know where the children are um where their remains are uh we don't know cause of death probably dehydration exhaustion who knows um but yeah they did find the skeletal remains Mm -hmm. but we still don't know where the children are or we don't definitively know why they went that way, first of right. all, um, and we don't know how they got there or how long they survived either. There's still like a lot of a lot of questions, right. um, you know, lots of whys. Like his credit cards were still in the van. Um, there wasn't activity, any activity recorded on Cornelia's bank cards. Um, why did they leave the van? Right.
1: Well, that seems like, yeah, the the most kind of pressing question is like, why would they leave their only source of shelter in a desert? Yeah. I mean, I guess it goes to his point that like, they didn't know, but I don't know. That seems pretty they had, obvious. They like, didn't
2: have many choices at all. Really. I guess
1: so. Yeah. I mean, obviously I've never, I've never been in that situation. Right. And their
2: flight was scheduled to leave the next day.
1: Yeah. So maybe they felt like they needed to like resolve this quickly.
2: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And they were drinking.
1: Yeah, I guess that could be part of it too. Maybe their judgment wasn't, you know, totally clear.
2: Yeah. And mm-hmm. that dehydrates you, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, that like would not have helped.
2: <laughs> yeah. But um so I mean one of the there's a lot of crazy theories. Mm-hmm. Um but the one I like was um some some relatives reported that Egbert was like really into Uh, technology and and conspiracy theories and stuff like that and so like one of the things that they're like oh what if egbert was trying to get into china lake the naval weapons center to see some like type of exotic technology or like solve some sort of conspiracy theory um you know did they see something they weren't supposed to see were they take taken down by like black ops like yeah um which is very silly it's yeah, not silly. plausible. China Lake isn't. It's not like. <laughs>
1: why <laughs> They're would not they be hiding
2: that? things over there? <laughs> also,
1: why wouldn't they just arrest them? <laughs> like that's what would happen.
2: Exactly.
1: <laughs> when people wander onto Area Fifty One, they don't get shot; they get arrested. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Um... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty stupid.
2: But um, yeah, that's it. And then again, my. My main source was um, the article by Tom Mahood, and
1: yeah. Cool. Thank you, Chloe.
2: Thank you. <laughs>
1: okay, now it's my turn. Okay, so part two, part, part two, two, another part two of the many parts two that we've done. Um, over the the ninety three episodes now that we've that we were up to, um, so like I said last week, we're going to be talking about um, some other people dealing with, um, and some people trying to solve the mysteries that surround, you know, rare diseases and, and conditions and so forth. Um, and at the beginning of last episode, I kind of gave a little primer as to what that, what is a rare disease, all that kind of stuff. So see that for those kind of contextual details. But, um, yeah, it, it's, um, kind of, it, it, interesting, I was, well, I was watching this, which I didn't really write about, but I was watching the Netflix documentary um, series that, that Chloe kind of pointed me to called Diagnosis, mm-hmm. and specifically episode one called Detective Work, um, and it's it's uh, uh, produced by the New York Times. Um, but anyway, it's uh, sort of, and it's great. I would really encourage you to go and watch it. Um, just a really great um, episode about one person trying to solve their one mystery of their mm-hmm. disease and how it affects her and her family and, and her whole outlook on life um, and the really kind um, people that help her to to solve her mystery. So, um, I would, yeah, I would just encourage you, cause we we also talked about how it, this is about people suffering from disease and their s- struggle and the people surrounding them struggle yes. to solve these mysteries. Like, that's yeah. the core of it and their experience and their you know, um, I don't know, just, just the, the, the wonder of their stories and their mysteries and, and seeing them, um, kind of overcome these things. Um, and I, I think that that episode really encapsulates that, um, really well in a way that I just can't, you know, because it's her and her family talking and her, anyway, I'm going to start crying if I talk about it too much, but (laughs) you, you will cry. If you don't cry watching that, you're Hard as stone. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, I just kind of wanted to plug that kind of first of all. But um it also kind of speaks to the first thing that I wanted to talk about, because I said last week, like it was very doom and gloom, and there's a lot of doom and gloom with this kind of thing, right? But there's also hope. There's also like people trying to help and like doing what they can. And part of that is this thing called the undiagnosed diseases network. Which is run out of the National Institutes of Health um, here in the United States. And when one, you know, just absolutely cannot be diagnosed, right, which is very common for people with rare diseases, um, eventually one may end up going to the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. And it's essentially an organization kind of um, within the National Institutes that connects clinicians, researchers, and patients to help you know, diagnose those just impossible-to-diagnose cases. Um, And a a Harvard researcher, Isaac Cohen, um, put it this way to the the Boston Globe, quote, the whole idea here is to enable to anyone with an undiagnosed disease to apply, be evaluated, and get referred with all relevant medical data, Mm -hmm. close quote. So just, you know, it sounds really simple, but that is, like, impossible to do for so many people. And there's so many layers of bureaucracy and and so many doctors and specialists that they have to go through.
2: I mean, we also just have such a great healthcare system I know, right?
1: Oh, it's so... I think it's perfect. I just... It's... Yeah. No, I know, right? Heavy
2: sarcasm. Very, Everybody, very heavy. Heavy I know. sarcasm. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think you can tell. So, oh, and you'll definitely get that from um, watching the Netflix series—the irony, uh, the cruel, I should say, irony of our healthcare system, as opposed to some other countries' healthcare systems. Um, so, anyway, um, and per Wikipedia, the um, Undiagnosed Diseases Network has been around for about five years. Um, And as of 2017, 1,519, 1,519 patients had been referred, about 40% of whom were accepted into the program, 260 of whom ended up actually receiving, you know, actual diagnoses. And when you see how that impacts one person's life, 260 doesn't sound like a lot, but it is an incredible amount. For for any one of these people to get their diagnosis, which may help to allow them to be treated or at least to know what the hell is going on, is uh, it's it, it's mind-bogglingly important. So for 260 people to have been able to do that over a few years is is really incredible, honestly. Um, and and it's it's only because th- these people focused on breaking through the you know Kafka esque healthcare system that we certainly have in this country so that patients and advocates um you know don't go from doctor to doctor but rather the doctors the specialists the testing anything that's necessary to get the diagnosis comes to them yeah that they're plugged into that network it's not that
2: it's about resources
1: exactly resources and visibility that's like if, if, if I could only make two points out of this whole story, resources and visibility are, like, the two things that help to solve these mysteries. Because, again, these are... Mi- the these internet! Are, the internet. This is one of those things the internet was literally made for. Like, when they oh. were developing the internet, this is the exact kind of thing.
2: Sharing knowledge. And
1: what they, they showed on the Netflix uh, episode exactly. That's exactly what they were um, talking about. So, anyway... Yes, go online, um, go to the UDN Gateway, um, which is an online portal funded by and run by the NIH, and, you know, you or someone who may be dealing with these things can um, hopefully use that as a conduit to that kind of visibility and connections to resources. And we, and we talked about this earlier, too, the really vital um, whole genome sequencing which, which is just, and Ooh, I'll talk about it in a second, like really so, what that is, which oh, is so key to, to this whole thing, and it, it really is crazy, yeah. Um, and that's the kind of thing that may be necessary to, again, solve these toughest um, of, of the tough diagnostic enigmas. So if one gets accepted to, to the UDN, um, one is referred to one of 12 clinical sites around the country. Um, and often... One will get the aforementioned whole genome sequencing, so whole genome sequencing that is a way to read not just the DNA um within the cell nucleus, right, as I was uh, we were talking nucleus. about this earlier, it's not just the DNA that tells the body which cells to make and how many to make, but also the rest of the DNA involved in the functioning of the cells, so which um particular parts of the DNA to turn on and off. And therefore, how the cells actually function.
2: Do they only look at genetic diseases?
1: Um, they don't only look at genetic diseases, but many, many of these um, rare diseases are are genetic, genetic in nature. diseases. Okay. So it's a main focus. Um, it's sort of a big focus. Um, and sometimes, you know, you think of gen- you think of genetic as being hereditarily genetic, but that's always not always the case either. Some of these rare diseases are. As they say, uh, what is it, sui generis uh, mutations? So they're not something you got from your your mom or dad. They're something that was something, created by a mutation in your body, a okay, random mutation, yeah. or your something body got hit by a gamma wrong. ray, or some. You know, as we'll talk about in the sort of story that I'm going to talk about, there could be environmental factors involved as well. So we'll get into that too, but sometimes it is sufficient to, um, do this whole genome, um, sequencing in order to, you know, find out what the genetic anomaly is, you know, from wherever it came. So anyway, um, this is, yeah, looking at sort of the whole range and, and scope of the DNA involved in, in the functioning of your body, which is, um, what allows them to, uh, to, to get that actual diagnosis, to say exactly this is what it is. Um, so it's, it's not a cure-all like we talked about. It, it, it's not going to solve every one of these mysteries, but it, it has made a significant difference um, in terms of what I found in my research in solving rare disease cases. Uh, through the UDN, so that's um, partly because the cost of the test has come down dramatically by okay. orders of magnitude okay, over the past like ten or fifteen good. years, right? Um, so it's it's a it's more widely it's available, more so,
2: accessible,
1: exactly. Even in our you know our healthcare system, I'll just say that if a genetic anomaly is identified, that's when the detective work, you know, sort of the the groundwork, right, of the clinicians and the researchers. Begins because it's not necessarily enough to know what the particular genetic anomaly is to know that that's what's causing your disease. So this is kind of a subtle thing too. One may have a genetic mutation, uh-huh. but you and and have a disease, right? But you don't know if that's you know necessarily actually, actually what's causing uh, it. So there's sometimes tricky. where you know they look in this wide database, right, and they say, oh. This mutation—it's rare, but the people who have it don't exhibit these symptoms. So this is probably not what's causing it, or they may, which is really interesting. Do sort of targeted research using genetic manip- man- uh, manipulation—you know, CRISPR and all that kind of stuff—to introduce the genetic mani- uh, mutation into like a zebrafish or a fruit fly, and then um, study them. Let's see how
2: it in- it it. it- Exactly, oh, and
1: a... how it expresses how yes. it, how it manifests know, manifests exactly, so that's another kind of way in which they'll they'll look into it so these clinic clinical investigators will also look nice. for evidence um what do you do
2: for a living oh you know I'm a clinical investigator <laughs>
1: right um like I said, in these kind of large genetic databases, so that they may connect it you know in fact to someone else who has the genetic anomaly and is suffering from a similar set of symptoms. In essence, in a perfect world, the process for a patient um, kind of goes like this. It's a series of connections uh, from a person to another person, right, that leads ultimately to a treatment or a cure. You know, that's what we hope will happen, right? That's what happened for, um, and I'm blanking on her name, uh, Angel, um, in the uh, Netflix series. So, you know, that's that's hopefully what yes, will happen. the first
2: one, it, the first episode is a happy ending.
1: Right. Of course... It doesn't always work out that way, yeah. you know. Unfortunately, sadly, it, it saddens me to say that, uh, literally. Um, but the UDN and and people like them who are doing this investigative work help to improve the chances, and that's really all that we can hope for with things like this, you know. As we right, um, right. so as we touched on in the last episode as well, um, you know, it, it it helps to create that visibility. That that's the other part of it. So. You know, if two people who are suffering from a rare disease, you know, go to the UDN, well, then they're both going to know about each other. Right. So it helps to foster that community, that network, Um, because if there's no, you know, if there's one, if there's two patients as tragic and, and as important as it is for even, you know, for just one or two people to be suffering from a rare disease, unfortunately, there won't be any focus on treating it or on finding a cure. That's
2: I, I have a question. Yeah. I don't and I don't know if you know the answer to this. Um you said people get accepted. Why wouldn't one you get accepted?
1: Because you don't in fact have the kind of condition or um disease that they would, you know, be helpful in looking into. Um I'm not sure, maybe other factors. Maybe you have comorbidities that just you know, they wouldn't necessarily be able to I don't know. Yeah.
2: They I'm would, not sure. They wouldn't be able to help you in the first place.
1: That's yeah. I mean, that's what I would imagine. I bet
2: some people fly thinking they have, like, one thing and they don't and...
1: Yeah. Or maybe they have a diagnosis, but they want a second opinion and maybe that's not really what they're there for.
2: Right.
1: I'm not totally sure. Um, but as... So... It, it, again, creating that network, right, if, if even a relatively small group of patients and advocates band together to create that visibility, then there's that incentive for researchers, pharmaceutical companies to take action. Um, David Adams, a pediatrician with the NIH, sums up the goals of the, the UDN like this, quote, It is our hope that the Gateway will serve as a model for rare, re, uh, rare disease research minimizing the practical distance between families and subject experts who may be anywhere in the world, right. close quote. And of course, that was the case for Angel. Um, although it wasn't technically through this, but it's really that practical distance, right? Um, the internet can eschew physical distance, but it takes networks like this to, you know, get rid of the practical distance. Okay, so that's just one example of people trying to make things better for patients, families, etc. Obviously, there's other good examples out there. So, um, yes. Now, let's dig into a more particular story from another long-form article. We love our long-form articles on uh, Mystery Murder Thingy. um, That will highlight the theme that I mentioned last episode of environmental justice. Because that's sort of intrinsically linked with... um, rare diseases, right? There are certain instances, famous instances, multiple, more than just this, obviously, where that sort of paradox that we discussed last time as well, that rare diseases can be more common among a certain subset of the population or in a right, certain location. Right,
2: right, 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 yeah.
1: Right, where it's it sort of belies the, you know, name of rare disease. So, courtesy of the um, writer Joshua Sharp for Atlanta Magazine, we're going to be exploring one of these stories in Georgia, uh, Waycross, Georgia, to be exact, um, rural Waycross, Georgia, or semi-rural, at least. So the mystery-plaguing Waycross, um, and this is, you know, sort of in the... Um, what are we looking at here? In, in sort of the mid-20-teens, um, the mystery-plaguing Waycross at that time can best be summed up by the uh, headline to the article by Joshua... Quote, why are so many people getting rare cancers in this small Georgia town? Mm. Close quote. Oh. And I thought that was just such a great summation of that. Um, and it, 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 it has a lot of inherent interest to anyone who's interested in these subjects, but obviously to those people as well. Right. It's it's a very chilling and dire mystery to those people. And and again, we want to focus on the, the people Is and it we, the water? we definitely need to do that. Well
2: I guess we don't know. Well, do we know?
1: Well <laughs> It's a mystery podcast, so probably not going to get a super satisfying answer, but um, I don't want to give it away because I've got about uh, three pages to go here before we get to anything uh, that's even close to an answer. So let's dig in. So, um, yeah, this is also when creepy terms like cancer cluster come into play.
2: Oh, love that.
1: And oh. you may or may not have oh heard that term, and a higher incidence of of cancer, which you know obviously may be um, caused by some sort of environmental. Common? Well, no, I mean by their very nature, cancers clusters aren't common. Um, but it it refers to the fact that a certain type of cancer is more unusually common, alarmingly common. In a certain area. Okay. Okay. And um, tragically, a cancer cluster seemed like it may be developing in 2015 around Waycross, Georgia. Specifically when three children were diagnosed with uh, rhabdomyosarcoma in this, like I said, small industrial Georgia town. And uh, RMS, as it's known for short, is a cancer of the connective tissues around the muscles, um, and this sort of out-of-control pol- proliferation of the connective tissue cells can cause very painful masses, uh-huh. swelling, um, other symptoms. Sometimes it can develop around the eye and cause ocular issues, um, de- you know, depending on where it presents within within the body. And it can be almost anywhere within the body where there's that sort of connective tissue. Good. And it's also very rare, um, with only about a dozen cases Reported in Georgia every year. And obviously seeing three of these in, in a small town, place, right, is is a, a sort of bizarre. alarm bell. So RMS also has no cure and also no proven cause. In other words, it's been determined that it's not able to be determined what actually could cause it, which, which is actually not uncommon in cancer. A-
2: able to be determined, meaning like th- it could be so many factors that they can't pick one or the other way around
1: when you're talking about determining the cause of a disease, you have to identify a pathway. So a medical investigator would have to say, you know, for example, this genetic anomaly causes this malformed, um, you know, um, protein, which causes this cell to proliferate, which is causing a tumor, right? There has to be a a, chain of causation. Whereas with rhabdomyosarcoma, There's not able to be a. There's just no established way to know what the link is to cause it. Okay.
2: Okay. So that
1: that chain of causation can't be established. Even if you can say that there's a likelihood that it was caused by a certain source because it is known to be carcinogenic, which means cancer causing, you, you can't say for sure that this thing caused your rhabdomyosarcoma. So again just laying that out there right we're not, we're not we're probably not given any definitive answers so just want to be real clear That's about that That's the mystery That's the mystery Where is it? Right so um yes as i find my place here on the page so in a sense this diagnosis is inherently a mystery right but that doesn't mean that no one has any idea either as we'll get into so after another child, the fourth now, was diagnosed with a Ewing sarcoma, related and also incurable cancer, the parents of Waycross, Georgia, at the very least, and other citizens, obviously, were pretty certain that something was going on. They, they, you know, some something had to be going on, right? And in fact, two years earlier, a local Waycross resident named Joan Tibor created a group called um, Silent Disaster quote, to Ooh. spread the word about pollution in town, close quote.
2: Ooh.
1: Right, so... That's uh, a
2: very intriguing name.
1: Silent Disaster? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, great naming, great yeah. branding, because, yes, it, it just brings up, you know, that um, image in your mind immediately, right? So, um, yes, there there was and is a lot of pollution in and around Waycross, Georgia. Like, that's not a mystery, right? So the fact that there are people looking into it also, you know... Definitely makes sense. So when this was happening, though, when these diagnoses were, were coming to light, the Georgia Department of Public Health and eventually a division of the CDC, the Centers for oh, Disease Control, yeah. would would come in and look into this mystery of whether the industrial actors in and around Waycross were, in fact, negligently poisoning residents and giving children cancer. Oh, the to, 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 to not put it too bluntly, right? Jesus! Um... Not that they were doing it on purpose, mind you, you know, I don't I don't want to make like unfounded accusations, but um, I do want to make founded accusations. I don't want to um, shy away from saying what it is. you know that that's the scope of what we're looking at here. The residents of Waycross, in other words, as Joshua put it in his article, were quote, forced to consider whether the industries that gave it life could now be taking lives back. close Ooh. quote. Really good article. Perfect. A lot of good phrasing in this article. I like it. The investigation and notion that the heavy industries in town may be culpable—divided uh, opinion within the town, as as you can imagine.
2: Seems seems about right. Right.
1: Some saw the notion of a cancer cluster as a consequence of busybody residents and carpetbaggers making stuff up, you know, and trying to make just just make trouble for the the good people of Wake. I
2: wish. Sometimes I wish that I believed stuff like
1: that. Right. Ignorance, bliss, that sort of thing. On the other hand, were residents who themselves or family members had been affected by a rare disease or otherwise felt that their health had been impacted, you know? So while residents debated, the authorities investigated. And they had, like I said before, a lot to investigate in terms of possible contamination or environmental hazard um, in and around Waycross as um, nearby, you know, and sort of emblematic of that, nearby Ware County, um, and they call it, like, um, Waycross Ware County, it's like this one sort of, you know, unified area, has nine of the most contaminated sites in the state, according to Joshua's article. And there was also a one, um, oh one-time federal Superfund site as well, nearby. Um, and Superfund sites are, are um, sort of, places that are really heavily polluted and probably are causing some, you know, ongoing imminent harm to people. Um, And, you know, there had been remediation and so forth, but obviously this is more than their fair share. And this is sort of, you know, when we talk about environmental justice, that's what we're talking about, right? Some people are bearing more than their fair share of environmental hazards in this country, whereas other people are not. And that implicates a lot of other things that you know. I could go on for a long quote time quote, about fair but share. Yeah. So right. What what does that even what does we'd that rather even mean?
2: have no share? Right.
1: Exactly. But you know, for example, when the EPA um, calculates the you know load, right, the 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 presence of environmental toxins or, or contaminants. In the air, they take an average, and they specifically and intentionally take their readings from outside of known areas of high concentration, because they want to get an average over a large area.
2: Okay, they want it to be accurate?
1: They want it to be accurate, right? So it makes sense, scientifically, but it also... Doesn't capture the experience of the people like these people in Waycross, Georgia, who are living near these sites and who aren't experiencing the average. They're experiencing what they experience, which is probably much higher. But we're not doing the readings, you know, on a regular basis necessary to establish that. Oh. And when you don't have data, you don't, you know,
0: the okay. things don't don't get
1: done. So again, it's 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 sort of a yeah, a whole ball of wax. Um, so. Yeah. Um, okay. Again, trying to find... <laughs> I'm getting off on a lot of tangents this episode.
2: No, 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 but this is good. Right. Because that makes a lot... It, it, it makes sense as to why. It gives us a, a, a why.
1: Yeah. It, it, or a
2: possible it, a Demystify a little
1: bit, at least. Okay, so meanwhile. That's one of my famous meanwhiles. Meanwhile. So meanwhile. Meanwhile. The first local child diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma, Lexi Crawford, is... And, and again, this is around 2015, is uh, dealing with the pain and nausea. Um, and How old is she? 14, oh, 14, 15, and, and going through things I can't even begin to imagine right. um, caused by her cancer and the chemotherapy fighting it. And by the summer of 2016, Lexu's hair had fallen out entirely as she suffered through the long shot treatment that she hoped and her family and everyone else hoped would save her life. Her fate and those of the other children affected at this point remained very much a mystery. Mm. Others in town began to contemplate whether their relatives, it, the author himself, actually, and his mom who died of cancer many years before this, um, you know, he started to, to kind of think about this too, you know, had their Relative had their friend who was afflicted with a rare cancer or other disease, you know, could they be part of a pattern? And could this be a pattern? Is there a pattern? Yeah, what, everybody, you know,
2: it's kind of like a not an epidemic, but like uh, I don't know how to explain it. People are scared. People are scared.
1: Yes. One enterprising resident who had been looking into some of these mysteries for some years was um, a woman named Nelia Griffin who. Contracted breast cancer herself um, several years earlier, and it eventually was um, seemingly cured by a, a combination of, uh, I believe it was chemotherapy and a double mastectomy. Okay. So once she kind of you know went um, um, past her treatment phase, she made it her mission to find out why she had gotten the the much much harder question, right, of why. She had gotten the um, cancer that she had gotten in the first place. Wow,
2: she went on to explore that herself.
1: Yeah, she just guts exactly. She just like took this on as her mission. It's very impressive. And once she, oh, um, so yes, that that led her to investigate a number of possible um, sources of harmful contamin- contamination in and around waycross right we keep cycling back to that right the the, the fact the that contamination that there are these sites we know there are these places that have contamination and like what is that doing what is that doing to that's the, people? the question that's the question that's the big mystery here so Hi,
2: there's the rub ah
1: yes she actually um nelia took joshua sharp the the the, uh, article writer on what she call, or one sorry, on what he calls, quote, the kind of tour no chamber of commerce would ever sanction, close quote, because <laughs> they're essentially just going by like the most polluted places around town. So their first stop was oh a God. shuttered, uh, wastewater treatment facility called seven out. And it had only operated from about 2002 to 2004 and left, in its wake, in in the wake of its closure, a number of immense containers full of contaminated water. Oops. They just left them there.
2: Did they... Were there any consequences? Well... By, from a company?
1: Not to them, seemingly. Not that I heard of, certainly. In early... Is that
2: legal? Sorry. Keep going.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in early 2005... Uh, wastewater was seen... This is not funny at all. In early 2005, wastewater was seen flowing from at least one of these containers into the Waycross Canal oh, system. Fuck. So, like, that did Holy happen.
2: Holy shit.
1: And the EPA eventually removed 350,000 gallons of waste. That's sickening. Yeah, so news of this incident also did not reach the local residents till... Um, the, uh, uh, I'll lovingly call the benevolent busybody, Joan Tibor, brought it out into the open in 2013. So this, like, oh seven years later.
2: She was like, oh, fun fact, everybody, uh, here's what was, happened. She was, like,
1: looking through, um, records in, like, the town hall. I mean, really, like, the, some of these people are just, they're they're very impressive. Like, the, the lengths to which they go to try to solve these mysteries I mean, in their yeah. community. Like, it's, it's, um... It's like
2: the whole community's on your shoulders, you feel like, right?
1: Um, that's probably how she feels, you know, yeah. Um, And she seems like she's one of the, the, you know, I mean, obviously, I have no idea, right? I just read this one article, but, you know, at least, you know, she's she's definitely do, uh, bearing her load for the community, it seems. So anyway, local residents were assured at that point, right, that no lasting harm was done, but obviously they were left wondering. Um, And, you know, why they weren't told about it and, you know, whether the officials that were telling them that could really be believed. Nelia and uh, Joshua, uh, continuing our uh, tour that no Chamber of Commerce would ever sanction, also visited the sort of centerpiece of Waycross, Georgia, called the CSX Rice Yard, um, which is a, a, a rail yard named for W. Thomas Rice, a 19th century railroad baron, whose uh, descendants, I'm pretty sure, don't live anywhere near the yard named after him. I mean... (laughs) And the yard (laughs) is, uh, right, so not to get too snarky, um, but the yard is a crossroads, um, thus the name of the town for train routes, including the moving of chemical waste, uh, paint thinners, you know, other you know okay. kind of chemical waste products. Some of that waste ended up being dumped into the soil in the 1980s for several years before regulators put a stop to the practice. It, essentially, they were found to be running an unsanctioned chemical disposal facility.
2: So do you think it's ignorance or greed?
1: Some of it was ignorance. Um... The particular contaminant that may be the most harmful, it wasn't known that it was carcinogenic until into the 80s, and they did eventually stop using it, but there was this period that we know that that this did happen, and when CSX, um, the company that bought the yard, bought it in 1986 they created a remediation effort including okay. 150 wells linked to a system to pull in and treat groundwater which they claim has treated more than 620 million gallons so it's not like they did so nothing they
2: went in and okay yeah they
1: they they are they you know plan. they're trying to clean things up now how much of that contamination is left is a, is a mystery yeah
2: there's a lot. Oh, god there's so much going on here <laughs>
1: yeah so as of uh, the 2010 census about 4000 people including about 500 children younger than 6, lived within a mile of the yard. Just, just a factoid. And the canal that runs by the yard also runs all over town, potentially spreading contaminated water far from even the ex- very expansive train yard itself. In March of 2016, the investigators from the CEC's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, so that's the particular division that was, like, looking into this, were ready to announce their findings to the concerned citizens of Waycross. One such citizen was James Thomas, whose wife was diagnosed with brain cancer, unfortunately, after they moved um, near the railroad and canal in Waycross. Reportedly, he was the first person to arrive and told one of the federal investigators that, quote, the state's nothing but a pack of liars, close quote.
2: Why? Yeah. I mean, yeah, keep going.
1: Eventually, the investigators disclose that they did find a toxic substance, TCE. This is what I was talking about earlier that, you know, wasn't known to actually be carcinogenic until, until- you know, about 30, 35 years ago. In the soil, uh, they found TCE in the soil around the rail yard. Like then, like in 2015, when they were doing the, you know, um, investigation, mm-hmm. but they said that they could not necessarily identify a known pathway from that contamination to a possible exposure by Lexi and the other children. So what they said was, well, we know, yes, TCE so like- is here, but it's here. It's it's in the it's in the soil. It's in the ground over here. And then their houses are, like, over here.
2: They didn't find, like... They didn't, like, tap into their water line and find it or something.
1: Well, I will I was going to get into it, oh, that at oh, the oh. end, but... No, 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 it's not answering the question. The 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 water itself, the drinking water, is not part of this. That comes from an oh. aquifer from Florida and has... It, in no way has anything to do with this. So I guess I'll just answer that question now. So, oh, yeah. You the, said the, canal
2: the, earlier...
1: Right, and the canal is not the drinking water.
2: water. Okay.
1: Yeah, so the, the drinking water doesn't come from a well or canal or anything in Waycross itself. It comes from Florida. Okay. So yeah, the drinking water has nothing to do with it. So it's more like physical exposure, as we'll, we'll kind of get into in a little while. So it, even if it could be determined, they said, that there was some possible physical exposure to TCE by these children, they still couldn't necessarily know that it caused their cancer. Right there it which, is. Which again, we we already knew, and people already knew TCE was there. The, the, people already knew all this stuff. They didn't but this is find the time any. Time they're
2: talking about it, right?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, it's the first time these federal investigators are talking about it. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is kind of frustrating, as you can imagine. So in the end, little of the core mystery, right? Of you know what's happening, why is it happening to these people, is resolved to anyone's satisfaction. Right. A year mm-hmm. after that. Um, and Lexi Crawford is responding pretty well to the treatment for her rhabdomyosarcoma. She's returned to school, um, but still is left, you know, with the mystery of how long her cancer will remain at bay. And though, um, sorry, through Joshua's investigative reporting, though Lexi and her parents did start to determine a possible cause of the cancer, if it was linked to the contamination. And this is kind of the physical exposure part of it that I was talking and this about is earlier. The, this is the if? It, well, the, 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 this, this could be. This is sort of our best guess as okay. to what, you know, it could be. So a pond adjacent to the rail yard in which Lexi and other children swam may have been contaminated with CTE. It wasn't directly tested, so we don't actually know. Okay, But it could be. Have been, and that could have been the possible p- cause of the exposure. So Lexi did go there almost every day in the time leading to up to her diagnosis. and um, yeah. she also used to play in an actual um, part of the canal that's closer to the rail yard itself, mm. and um, that you know to me that seems like it, the more likely cause. If there, you know, if this was the cause of it, that that's where it may have been um, because according to joshua in his article the closest known contaminated part of the rail yard like soil is about three quarters of a mile from the pond and like Where i said swam all the time right and like i said there are these there are these wells that are kind of um keeping it not perfectly but you know pretty well um on the site itself so even if it were the cause, it still also leaves the mystery of why didn't the other kids who played in these areas get sick? You know, why was it just her? So that, you know, again, it's like you you, you close one door and another door opens. Right. So by May of 2017, Lexi and another of the affected children had unfortunately passed away. And um, unfortunately she she was not able to be um, cured through her treatment. So, yeah, sad. Um, very, very but sad. They still don't
2: really know. There's still so much. But, co- but obviously, questions. right, we
1: continue to look into it. So the next summer, uh, 2018, the CDC releases a mostly inconclusive report, of course, on possible contamination from the rail yard and its, um, you know, effects. The report doesn't address other possible sources of contamination in and around Waycross. So it it was from a pretty limited. Nine, you said. Well, that's in sort of the wider area also in Ware County, but um, certainly there's more than just the CSX, you know, rice yard to look at in town as well. So they formally determined that there was not a cancer cluster, although instead of using sort of data as of where the patients lived, like when they were diagnosed or whatever, they used um, the location of the hospital where they were diagnosed for some reason. So, they just basically excluded four of the five cases, including Lexi's, as not being, like, part of Waycross. It didn't make any sense to me. So, the whole notion of whether there was a cancer cluster, technically, they say no, but I feel like it's still a mystery, for sure. They
2: didn't look at—are you saying that they didn't look at the right—the core places?
1: When they determine when—so, when the state determines whether a cancer cluster occurs— the data that they use, right, to determine whether in a physical area it's actually a cluster is where the hospital is where the patient was diagnosed. So if I, for example, right, I live in Bloomington-Normal, but if I went to Peoria and got diagnosed there, it would oh. count for Peoria. And then, if, and then if another resident of Bloomington-Normal got diagnosed here, it would count for here. So even though we both live in the same town we wouldn't count as being in the same town for purposes of the determination of a cancer cluster. So that's it, kind
2: of yeah. Okay.
1: So it it okay, seems I guess. yeah, it doesn't <laughs> really make sense. So yes, um, the uh, ultimately they determined that it was unlikely that contamination from the canal could have caused disease because it was found at too low of levels. Although to me, right, detection is different than level of exposure. So I don't really know how they can say that if they don't know how often these people were exposed or at what levels they were exposed. If you're just taking one test and you say, okay, if I get exposed to the one amount that's in that one test, maybe not. But what if I get exposed repeatedly? Or what if I get exposed, you know, more than what's in that test? I don't know. It, It doesn't again it's there there's a lot of holes to poke in this i think and people certainly did so um you know people like joan tabor people like the the parents of the 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 patients you know obviously and other people who are wondering again you know am i part of this is my family part of this too investigators also said that the ground filtration system seemed to work well um which i, I don't you know have any indication that it didn't necessarily but they did say that there were three known instances between 2001 and 2013 when contamination seeped just outside the rail yard's bounds, including in areas that were closer to where Lexi lived. So that, you know, obviously could be part of it as well. CSX, the company, again, that owns the rail yard, essentially took this as vindication. Most of the residents of Waycross weren't really moved one way or the other. And in the end... You know, like so many mysteries surrounding rare diseases, we're left with a lot of maybes, a lot of unsatisfying answers.
2: Wow, that was really good.
1: So, and I, I could, I could, I could do three more episodes on this. Seriously, there are so many good stories out there and interesting stories about the people dealing with this and solving these kind of mysteries. But um, you maybe someday I'll do another one. But y'all look. And and I'll I'll tweet out some of the um, sources as well, um, uh, and some of the other ones that you know I I didn't quite get to from the from the official account. Okay, so my sources though were Sean Captain at Fast Company, Wikipedia, the Undiagnosed Disease Network and Rare Disease Pages, Kelly Clancy at Wired, Ed Yong at Pacific Standard, uh, Pacific Standard, excuse me, Joshua Sharp at Atlanta Magazine, the American Cancer Society. Webpage Shirley Lung at boston globe and that episode of diagnosis that we mentioned earlier wow. yeah so um
2: that was very in-depth that was that was crazy
1: yeah no it's a really crazy story that, that he tells in the article no it's really interesting well thanks for listening y'all
2: mario don't you have Weird shit oh, in
1: the news. Okay, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure whether we were gonna do it or not. Oh, is, so, it, is it late? Are no, no, what? it's okay. No, it's fine. It's fine. Ooh-ha. So I was just gonna mention it because I thought it was interesting. So I read this article earlier, and I don't even remember which where I read it, but anyway, it was about Tom Hanks. You know our friend Tom, <laughs> and right, and um, you know how he's playing Mister Rogers, right, in the upcoming Newsies. movie about yeah. Mister Rogers. Apparently, he's also related to Mr. Rogers to Fred Rogers and they are sixth cousins they share a relative who lived in uh, was born in 1732 I believe it said so distant you know distant but hey they're you know it's a weird connection it's weird right it's weird counts also good I felt like it was good shit in the news because it has to do with you know Mr. Rogers and
2: everybody likes Mr. Rogers and Tom
1: Hanks everybody likes Tom Hanks you know
2: on World Kindness Day, they um, put newborns in in hand-knitted sweaters. I saw that.
1: Yep, I definitely so saw cute. that. Aww, so right. Cute. Yeah, so um, that's I guess that's it for this week, pretty much. Um, I'm I'm taking over our um, our uh, Twitter page, and I'm trying to do a little bit more. I'm so um, bad at it. It's fine. Uh, we're getting it restarted, and so I've already tweeted out a couple of things. So I'll be. Tweeting out um some of my um highlights of just my sources shh, shh, and all that just, stuff.
2: Just check it out. Check it
1: out. Well, I can't tell them what I'm gonna do.
2: This is right. no, just kidding Okay. <laughs> you have to you have to follow the page to find out.
1: <laughs> Go to at murderbythingy thingy to find out. To find more. <laughs> okay. Okay, bye.
2: Thank you guys so much for listening. Yes. Don't forget to tell your friends.